Well, good morning. Good morning, Craig. It's uh, a lot of us were here two weeks ago, and for those of you who weren't, we uh, continuing on with something we started two weeks ago. We hope to catch you up with us. In fact, in your bulletin, there are some notes from two weeks ago that uh, you can look at. So, let me pray. Father, so much has happened this morning already in which has brought pleasure to you and glory to your name, and we give you thanks for that. You are at work all over this world. And, and as a gathering of believers in Beijing, we thank you that we get to participate on this first day of the week, on August 28th, we get to be one of the first to participate in coming together in community and worshiping you on this Sunday as that flows through the rest of the world. We do so giving you thanks and praise. Amen. Well, how are you? That's a pretty vague question and maybe you know me well enough already to not trust me to give an answer. So, how are you could mean all sorts of things, and so let's, let's get it a little more narrow. Maybe we could say, how are you doing? Still pretty general, how are you doing? And if I were to call you out by name, or you, you know, we're all gauging how much would you like to share and so on. And, but really, most people don't mean it, so you say, fine. So let's get even more specific. What have you been doing? Well, now we're a little more specific. What have you been doing? And you realize, if I push it on you, that your a general answer, fine, isn't going to make it. Now you're going to have to say, well, I've been doing this and this, and then you have to decide which of your doings you're going to share with me. So let's, let's just go to the next level down and ask the question, were you good enough? Well, now where am I going? Well, now I'm starting to unpack your definition of good and good enough. But if you're going to answer me, you're going to have to consider what my definition of good is and good enough is. And you may not want to tell me you thought you were good enough because my definition of good enough is different than yours and then you'd be embarrassed. And so that's why we're just all going to be quiet and none of us are going to answer that question. But if we did want to ask if you were good enough, and of course not just get your subjective opinion, then we know what we're going to have to do. We're going to have to give you homework and a test. And two weeks ago, I gave you homework and I promised you a test today. So, good morning and welcome to the test. And in your bulletin, if you don't remember, uh, I printed the test questions for today. Two weeks ago, we talked about an issue. We, we entered into a conversation on the issue of sin. And we all would say, that's not good, and I don't want to do it, and so on. We looked at Genesis chapter 3 at the first sin by a human to see what we could learn from that. And out of that, we came with a conclusion, the question really isn't as much about the sin you did. There's the deeper question, 
about the good that is, and where do you go to discover the definition of what is good? And Adam and Eve decided they would rather be the ones to define what good is and not God. And so they proclaimed it was good to eat of the fruit of that tree. And once they proclaimed that, they then became the new standard bearer for the defining and the defense and the judgment of what is good. And immediately they felt great shame and uncomfortableness as they looked at themselves and each other and no longer were sure if they were good enough at all and needed to cover themselves up with fig leaves and then needed to go and hide. So there is our response when somehow we feel we may not be good enough, we hide. And two weeks ago, I asked you to consider some questions. In what areas might you be hiding? covering up what you see as wrong or shameful in your life. Maybe something might pop to the top of your mind at that, but I believe also if we do a good job of hiding that we even can hide things from ourselves and need to spend some time and maybe even get counsel from others who know us well. Areas of wrong or shame in your life, like past sins that happened to you. This is sins you didn't commit. It was done to you, and yet you carry a shame, you carry a burden, and you carry a desire to hide because of that. Or the sins that you committed in the past. Or perhaps you have very current sins out of control in your life, and you vividly know, yeah, I'm, I'm hiding, I'm trying to push that down. Another question, how might you be avoiding people or relationships because of the fear of being found out? Adam and Eve tried to avoid God. They went and hid in the garden. They didn't want to talk. They didn't want relationship with God. In what way might you also be avoiding people or in-depth relationships because you want to hide? I encouraged you to ask God to show you ways in which you are hiding from him and others. Ask him, in what ways might I be hiding? And again, sometimes we hide so well, we even hide from our own awareness of that. And then I also said to ask God to give you faith to trust him for the good in your life and to come out of hiding so you can receive that good. But coming out of hiding is so hard. And then I offered some passages for you to read, and we uh, started our talk in Mark 10 about the rich young ruler who came to Jesus and said, good master, what should I do? What do I need to do to make sure I inherit eternal life? We looked at Genesis 3 two weeks ago. I ask you to look at Romans 1, Psalm 32, and Psalm 51. Today what we're going to do is we're going to look at this issue of the problem of sin, that what catches our attention frequently, but we're looking at that It's saying, well, no, sin has no existence or substance unless there is good. Sin does not exist in itself. Evil does not exist in itself. It only exists because there is a good and it gets perverted and we call that evil. Is it possible then 
that we spend our time focusing on sin appropriately because of a desire to not sin, but yet we miss the foundational part of human existence which has to do with our relationship with God and this question that was asked in the garden, is God really good? Can he be trusted? Romans 1 would give us an objective foundation. Actually, Romans 1, 2, and 3, and up through 6. If we wanted to lay an objective foundation about this tension of good and why we don't do good, we don't have time to do that and look at Psalm 51. Psalm 51 gives us a subjective explanation and experience of dealing with sin and good. We are going to be looking at Psalm 51 today. I just want you to know that when we look at David's prayer, he did not create this, he did not make this, he did not put this together. This was not the power of positive thinking. It was none of those things. What David was experiencing was the beauty and the power of the death and the forgiveness of Jesus Christ that we read about in Romans. So again, the foundation of this and the truth of this is best explained in Romans when it comes to sin and God's wrath of sin and what Jesus has done. What I would like to do today, though, is to invite all of us into seeing in response to a sin how responding to the goodness of God rather than responding to the sin is the invitation that God gives us. In Genesis chapter 3, we, we said there was the problem of sin. We then two weeks ago said, well, we're going to say that is a problem and we're going to say the problem is not trusting God's goodness. That's the source of the problem here. You sin because you don't trust God's goodness. If you modify a sinful behavior and yet you still do not trust that God is good, then sin is going to pop out in a host of other ways. Many years ago when my kids were in elementary school, we went up to the mountains for a couple of days and and there was snow, and being from San Diego, we don't get snow there, so this was a fun experience for our kids. We, we found up on a hillside, we, found a, uh, we had a sled, and we, we found a sled run that, that obviously people had made and had been used much. And this went down the hill towards a tree, and then it had this big sweeping curve with this big wall on the side that would keep you from going into the tree but it looked like you were going into the tree, which is really cool, okay? That's, that's the fun part the kids like. Well, Julie wasn't so sure about that, but hey, I was, and the boys were, and off they were. Well, sooner or later, of course, the kids wanted to see mom go down the sled. All right, so uh, I said, okay, I, I will take you. And so we sat down on the sled, and, and I say, now, Trust me, we're not going to hit the tree, trust me. And so we go down, we're on the path, 
We just start going around the curve. We're going around. We, we're, it's under control. And she sticks her foot out because she's afraid. And we spent three hours in the hospital. Now, sticking her foot out to save her life is not intrinsically evil. It wasn't that she did an evil act in and of itself. We might say that's foolish. We might say a lot of things, but I want to tell you what was at the heart of her action. She didn't trust me. That, that's the heart of it. We could argue the dynamics and the aerodynamics and the physics of, you know, going around this curve at this speed, and, but the bottom line was not a really a disagreement of any of that, the bottom line of why she got hurt was she did not trust me. Now, was that a good call on her part? <laughs> no. Trust, in the fullness of trust, part of trust, there's a moral emphasis to trust. Like, is Craig planning on doing evil to me? I don't trust him, he's going to do evil to me. There's that component of not trusting someone. They might lie, cheat, and hurt me. All right, Julie did not think I was going to purposefully hurt her. That wasn't the problem. The other end, in the fullness of trust, has to do with competence, ability. That's where I failed in her eyes. Did Craig have the competence to assess and the ability to steer us away from the tree? And she said, I do not trust him, so I will act in the way I think is best. And in that simple, very understandable behavior of hers, which all the people who know me agreed she probably did the right thing. <laughs> but, but I want to unpack that just so you know, lest we argue about the should-haves and could-haves and this, there was the bottom line, and the bottom line was she decided not to trust me and take things into her own hands. And what I'm telling you, there is a bottom line. Are you going to trust God or not? If you don't trust God, you will take things in your own hand. Probably most of the things you take in your own hand by not trusting him will not be evil things. They will be legitimate things, maybe even good things, wise things, helpful things. But yet, the foundation of your attitude is, I really can't trust God, so I've got to make these decisions on my own. I will accept God as an advisor. So were you good enough? the last two weeks. Well, actually, the assignment did not have to do with changing your behaviors and sinning less or doing more good actions. Your assignment had to do with one thing, hiding. That was all. So when we say, well, you're good enough, the context of my actual question is, how good of a hider were you these last two weeks? Let me give you some gold standards in hiding. Ah, uh, ah, uh, Hiro Onada. Hiro Onada, Japanese soldier. 
He hid out in the Philippine jungles until 1974, believing the war had not ended. He hid out in the jungles almost 30 years. He's good at hiding. That's good. He did not think it was over. He did not believe anything he heard. He lived, started with a couple of fellow soldiers who died, and he refused to believe when they dropped pamphlets in the jungle. He, he just said, I can't trust this and this. I'm going to continue hiding. He is a very good hider. And because of that, 30 years of his life was spent hiding. I hope you're not that good. The question really isn't just, were you good enough? The question is, were you found? Actually, probably better, were you found out? For those of you that did the assignment, were you found out? It wasn't go home and do better. It was go home and be found out. Go home, look at a sin, look at a shortcoming, look at a weakness, look at a history of you, and be found out. Quit hiding. Because when I hide, that means you don't know me. And when I don't think you know me, then you can't love me. Because if you say you love me, I just know you don't love me. You love the me you think I am, but I know I'm not, so I know you don't love me, so I live unloved. Hiddenness tears us apart. And, and literally, my question from two weeks ago is, were you found out? And if you did 20 new good deeds and stopped 20 bad habits all quietly, then you failed the assignment. The assignment was, why don't you try being found out in openness, in honesty, before others and before God. In Genesis chapter 3, we saw a problem which actually was a symptom of the problem, which is not trusting God, and we found Adam and Eve's first need was to be found out. And I think for a lot of us here, we, we may, you know, if we say, what are your needs? And it's like, oh, I need to do this better, and I need to do this less, and those are my needs. And, and I'd like to say, I think there might be a more basic need, and that is to be found out. Were you good enough? Were you found out? I want to look at two case studies. One we began two weeks ago, that is on the rich young ruler. This is found in Mark chapter 10. We're not going to read through it again. A young man who happened to be rich and have a position of authority came to Jesus and said, good master, what do I have to do to make sure I have eternal life? And that's when Jesus pointed it to the fact of, why are you calling me good? Only God is good. And the implications came out in the rest of the story. So, Jesus said, well, you know the commandments, obey them. And the man said, you know what, since I was a little kid, I did obey those commandments. Now, he wasn't perfect, but he was a very, very good man, very well-esteemed man. And so Jesus said, one thing you lack, 
one thing you lack. Give away all your money, give it to the poor, and come and follow me. And he went away sad because he was very rich. Have you ever thought, those of us who aren't very rich, I, being very rich, I think I could deal with whatever sadness comes with that. I, I mean, there's a part of me that does, all right? The surface part. It's like, wow, to be very rich and because of your riches, that makes you sad. Jesus is digging deep here. When a man who says, I am rich, and a Jewish society who says, that means God blesses you because that's what everybody thought. I am blessed of God. I am well-behaved. I am a moral man. I just have this question inside. I'm not sure of the answer. And, and yet, in the end, you're sad because you have been so blessed by God. Obviously, he was missing something. What I'd like to do in our case study, I'd like to look at five characteristics. And uh, there's going to be another homework assignment, so if you want to write these down, um, we're going to give you something to do later. I want to look at clearly identifying what is the problem. If you get the problem wrong, then obviously you're not going to know what to do. We want to look at the symptoms. So what are the symptoms of the problem? Probably all of us here who are old have a whole host of problems inside of me. I have no symptoms yet, so I don't know I have them. Check back in a week, and I might. The symptoms are what lets us know we got a problem. We want to look at the covering of that problem or the cover-up. In what way did our case studies cover up these problems? We want to look at the exposure because in all of these stories, it finally came out in the open. And if you might accept my word that says the first step of healing very, very frequently is going to be having things come out in the open, then obviously exposure is a key element towards your health and towards your growth. And then we want to look at the response. So after all of this has happened, what has been the response? Rich young ruler, problem. What's the problem of the rich young ruler? Well, he, remember where we're starting from. His problem was he did not trust God for his security in future. That's his problem. He did not trust God for his security and his future. What were the symptoms of his problem, not trusting God? Well, he was very insecure about his future. Here was a good man who was a rich man, the kind of man you think on an earthly level should just be like, okay, I am set. And yet, inside, he was insecure about his future, especially the eternal life part. And his symptoms was what he felt he needed was more good actions. That's another symptom. What is his need? More good actions. Jesus, what other good actions do I need? Another symptom of his problem we discover a little later on, he was looking for 
advice. He was looking for opinions so he could gather them and then make his own decision. Looking for advice. I will ask many people, try to get many different kinds of advice so that I can make the decision. And even though he's asking people to get advice, he's trusting in himself. You can get all the advice you want, but if you decide you will be the one to take all the advice and sort through it and decide which to keep and which not, then you are trusting in yourself. You are not trusting in God. What about his cover-up? How did he cover himself? He was insecure. I don't, I'm not sure about eternal life. He covered himself with his good works. Jesus, I've done it. I've kept the law. Look, I can have testimonials. People come. And he did keep the law. He probably did. He probably was a very, very moral person. That was his cover-up. How you doing? I'm doing okay. Why? I'm keeping the law. See, look at this. Here's my track record. Yes. Okay, I'm okay, I'm okay, I'm okay, I'm doing the law. He had the added benefit in the Jewish culture because he was wealthy. And their attitude was, being wealthy means God has blessed you. So that was the other element of his cover-up. He walked around smugly, knowing in everybody's eyes, they're saying, man, there's a guy blessed of God, he must be good with God. That was his cover-up to all around him. But yet it did not cover up the uncertainty and the questions deep in his heart, which is, I don't know if I'm good enough yet. And here was the guy, if there was any way to be good enough, he would have found it. He was it. What about the exposure, the uncovering, that painfully blessed event when God says, enough, of the cover-up. I'm going to bring it out in the open so it can be addressed. Usually that involves enough pain that at any one moment we would prefer that it not happened. What Jesus did first of all was challenge his plan. He came seeking for advice, giving Jesus a compliment, calling him good, and Jesus said, only God is really good here. But the ruler didn't pick that up because he comes back and says, okay, so teacher, what do you think? Rabbi, teacher, what do you think? God challenged his assumptions. God said, Jesus said, be careful about calling me good. Only God is good. And so the real issue has to do with your view of God. This is what's coming. Jesus then told him to give away all his riches and follow him. He says, you lack one thing. Give away, sell all your riches and give it to the poor and follow me. Is Jesus prescribing the way to become a follower of Jesus that we sell everything and, and give it to the poor? No, what Jesus is doing, because Jesus said you lack one thing. And what this man was lacking was 
He did not trust in God. He did not trust in that Jehovah God at that time, how he had shown himself. He was trusting in his own works and his own riches. That's what he was lacking. That selling all your stuff and giving it to the poor had nothing to do with anything he could earn to have assurance of salvation. It had everything to do with perhaps him seeing himself and realizing I just said no to this man who I said was a teacher from God. What Jesus was doing was inviting tenderly this man to allow himself to be exposed such that he could see himself for what he was. Jesus demanded total allegiance, total. His word was not advice. He could not get rid of some of his stuff. It had to be all of its stuff. The question then became, would he receive Jesus' word as the good of his life? Going home and saying, I'm going to do a good thing. What are you going to do? I'm going to get rid of all my stuff, honey. Why is that good? Because Jesus said that was good. You know, in in our culture, human-wise, we honor people who give a lot of money. It can even make the news. This multi-billionaire gave $2 million to this fund, and oh, yes, and, and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But notice Jesus flips things around. We as humans say, how much did you give? And Jesus is saying, how much did you keep? And I think in issues beyond money, we can do the same thing. Look at this person. They give so much. They give so much of their time. They're so enthused. They're they're so this and that. But then there's another question. What am I keeping for myself to put my own trust in? And, of course, the question of how much you kept, how much you would keep, Jesus happened to use that one as his main tool to expose this man for who he was. What was this man's response? Well, the ultimate response is he refused to trust Jesus. He kept the trust in himself. And in his view, he questioned the wisdom of getting rid of all of his money, which does make sense. That's a great question to ask. You probably shouldn't sell everything and give all your money away unless you're trusting the one who told you to do that as being ultimately good and as clearly saying, do this for my good and your good. He decided he would keep the defining of good to himself. He kept the responsibility of defending his own righteousness to himself. He went away from Jesus and his ultimate response was he was sad. He went away sad because he did not get what he wanted, because he was still trusting in himself, and that gave him sadness. I'd like to look at another case study on the other end of the spectrum, and this is going to be King David. In 2 Samuel 11 and 12, the first example, we have this good man doing good things, a moral man, and and all the good things he's doing, he's missing a little bit, and, and Jesus comes to him and offers him an opportunity to have an ongoing relationship with him and the man turns it down. Here we have almost on the other side of the experiencing, we have King David. And while he is king one day, he observes Bathsheba 
and he wants her, and he uses his kingly authority to take her and commit adultery with her, and she got pregnant, and he uses his kingly authority to kill her husband and uses his kingly authority to threaten anybody who knew about it and then used his kingly authority and his logic to marry her after her husband died so that it all looked good. That's David. That's, that's deception. That, that's virtual rape. That's murder. That's adultery. Woe. So, what is David's problem? He did not trust God to give him what he needed. That was David's problem. He did not trust God. He did not trust God to give him what he needed relationally, to give him what he needed sexually. He was operating with the assumption that somehow God was holding back. God was holding back when he said, stick with your own wife, David. God was holding back because God wasn't good. He is operating on that assumption. You and I probably would never say those words directly, but again, I think some of the reasons why trying to uncover what are the things we're hiding so we can look and see basically, yeah, this is what we're saying. God says this is the way to live and this is good, and we're saying, I don't think so, God, because I don't feel that way. I want something else. So what were the symptoms of David's lack of trust of God? Well, the symptoms were a ready responsiveness to the temptation of seeing a naked woman and acting on that. He was very responsive to that because he was used to being responsive to his wants and needs and not always responsive to what God has said. David sinned, and and notice it continues on. And so David committed adultery. But David did not trust God with confessing the sin of adultery. He did not trust God with that. And because he didn't, he then had to find a way to cover up the adultery, which involved murder. So you, you understand as heinous as his crimes were, at the core of each further step he took, it was a refusal to trust God in what God has said. Now, thankfully, we know the story. At the end, he will put his trust in God. But sadly, after he walked down the road, he had a nice cover-up operation. He invited Uriah to come home from the war, hoping that he would have sex with his wife, and then they wouldn't know who the baby was but Uriah wouldn't do that. He then had Uriah killed. He then had his general Joab, who kind of helped to see that Uriah died. Then David had to threaten him to shut up because David didn't want him to talk. And then David married Bathsheba, and now Bathsheba was pregnant, but she was married, and it was all happy. Well, it really wasn't. And now we have the exposure. And the exposure comes in... 2 Samuel chapter 12, when God sends Nathan a prophet. And God, in his graciousness, decides after nine months in which 
David describes his life in Psalm 32 that we looked at two weeks ago as agony of the bone as he kept his sin inside after nine months, because the baby was born, God decides to give David the gift of unveiling, the gift of exposure. And God sends Nathan the prophet And Nathan the prophet says, I'm going to tell you a story. Something happened here, David. There was this rich man who had thousands of lambs, and there's this little poor man and one little girl, and and they had a pet lamb, and it was their only lamb, and he slept in the house, and he was a nice lamb, and, and this rich man had friends over, and he didn't want to kill one of his, so he came and took this little lamb from this little poor family, and the girl was crying, and he took it away and killed that lamb. And David said, that man should die for that, he will be punished, he will replay, repay that fourfold, and so on. So, now notice, what was David acting like? David was acting like the judge of sin. He was a king, he was supposed to. So, David accurately judged this little sin of killing the lamb as being wrong and worthy of some kind of punishment. But, of course, then Nathan looked at him and said, David, you are the man. That is you. And David's hurting bones for nine months as he crammed this in burst. And David confessed his sin. He said, I have sinned against God. The exposure came as a gift from God. The exposure came when David pronounced a judgment that ultimately came and he realized it was on himself. I know as a parent, sometimes those characteristics and behaviors of my children that were most like my struggles, I tended to be the most judgmental and harsh on frequently. It was just a reflection of some of my own struggles and hiddenness. Well, what was David's response? David's response was immediate admission and confession. He owned up to his sins. No excuses, no explanations. He had sorrow. He desperately asked for mercy. He received God's invitation to trust him again. Now, understand that. He trusted God enough that when God says, I will forgive you, David, we can have a relationship that David believed him. David did not believe he had to go to a nine-month rehab program. He had to do so many sacrifices, and eventually God would. David actually trusted what God said, which is this just unbelievable statement that God said, David, this is what you did, this and this and this. And after all of this, David, I will forgive your sins, you will not die. And David trusted God instead of trusting himself, like maybe a lot of us do, with the thinking that, well, I should pay for this somehow, and, you know, God, I'm, I'm, just, I'm really going to work hard and, and try that this never happens again and make it up to these people. That's not trusting God, that's trusting you. David trusted God. That was David's response. 
David trusted that what was still available for him was to be a king who was a man after God's own heart because God had told David he was that. David just behaved in a way that didn't seem that way, but God said, David, I still want you to, I still want you to be king. And David trusted God's definition, and David believed him. Psalm 51. We're not looking at the whole psalm. I'd encourage you to spend time there. I just want to bring a couple of things up. This is Psalm 51. This is the psalm of David that he wrote after the prophet Nathan came to him after he had committed adultery with Bathsheba. In verse 1, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. David asked for mercy. He didn't ask for time. He didn't ask for anything. He didn't negotiate. He didn't offer excuses. He said, the only thing I can possibly have is mercy. I am desperate for mercy. Not understanding, not a second chance, just mercy. Verse 3, I know my transgression. My sin is always before me. He was keenly aware that this was sinful. The measure in which your sin, relatively recent or past, causes you pain is the measure in which you can rejoice and thank God you're not so dull and dead and hardened of heart that you cannot feel the Spirit of God convicting you. Instead of running from that pain, embrace it and trust that the pain of exposure, the invitation to deal with this, is what is best for your good. Verse 4, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are right in your verdict and justified when you judged. You see, David goes back to this main question. What's the main question dealing with sin? Do I trust God? What's the core of every sin? I did not trust God. I sinned against God. I told God he wasn't enough. He wasn't powerful enough. He wasn't good enough. He wasn't kind enough. That's what I told God when I said, I will not trust you. That is the source and the ultimate of the sin. There are many consequences of that. People get hurt. Uriah was dead. Uriah's parents grieved over that. But the heart of it is... It's not a sin against Uriah and Bathsheba and the family. The heart of it, it's a sin against God. And out of that come all of the ramifications and other people getting hurt. But David understood that was the heart of it. Verse 7, cleanse me with hyssop, I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Do you hear David's words of trust there? Cleanse me and wash me and I will be. He trusted God. God, if you cleanse me, I will be white and clean. I will be the adulterer and the murderer and the deceiver who is white and clean before you. That doesn't seem right or fair on a human level. That has to be a message from God or it's a message from the pit that those who sin actually can be clean. The question is, will you trust God that that can happen. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. What is David asking for? David has been crushed and hurting in his bones, and Nathan came and utterly destroyed him with the unveiling of this, and yet David says, there's joy out there out of this crushing of me 
there is joy available. Verse 10, create in me a pure heart, O God, renew a steadfast spirit within me. Really, David? You think you can go and act as a king and a judge after you did this? And David says, I trust that God can give me a clean heart and a steadfast spirit. I will trust him for that. Verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your way, and sinners will turn back to you. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. In this prayer, David never asked for help to act sexually pure. He never asked for help. He doesn't say, God, send me five men that can help me in this problem. Nothing wrong with a lot of these things, but here's the core. This is what the man did. He never mentions any of these specific sins, past or future or a fear of them. He just says, this is an issue between you and me, God, and this is what I did against you only, but this is what I trust you can do in me, and that includes the word joy. After what David did and after what was going to happen to his family that God said would happen, David had joy. How do you have joy after doing that? How do you have joy living out ugly consequences of things you've done? You trust God. David trusted God through a whole host of tragic consequences that came out of his family. Verse 17, my sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you will not despise. The problem when we go before God is not that we have sin. Our problem is not going before God with sin on our hands. Now, you know, before we go worship God, if we've offended our brother and sinned against our brother, we should go make it right with him. That, that's a horizontal but my problem isn't really my sin because in reality, my sin is what makes me broken. And when I come to God with my sin broken, that's the best offering to give to God. What's the alternative? I come to God with my not sin, which is my righteousness, my self-righteousness. I come to God. Let me tell you how, how I do it. I, I, I say an unkind word with unkind tones to my wife, and yeah, and, and then I'm thinking, okay, you know, I shouldn't have done that, but I personally think, and, and I do think this, I'm not saying I'm right, I think I'm in the top 50% of husbands in the world, okay? I clean the kitchen, I wash clothes, I iron clothes, okay? I mean, right? 50%? Here's the point. That, that's really nice if I do those things, and, and all of those are nice, but that's not the issue. And when I come to God after having hurt her in a very unchristlike way with my tone and my look and my words, and I say, Okay, God, I really shouldn't have done that, but you know, I do have this little Craig righteousness here. Doesn't that count for something? And God says, you are not offering me anything, Craig, until you come and say, I have nothing. I have nothing. 
There is no good thing I have ever done that means anything compared to what I just did because God, you told me, you invited me, you said you would empower me to love my wife as Christ loved the church, and I decided this time my wife needed a stern word from me and not the love of Jesus. I said, you were wrong, God, and I was right. And that's my invitation when I really realize that to a broken and contrite heart. That's how I get to go before God. That's the invitation that we are given here. Well, I have one more case study, and uh, this particular case study is you, so this is your own. This is your homework. Uh, there there's, might be helpful to look at the five questions and descriptors that I use. What I'd like to do is very briefly, I picked three categories of items, and there's many more. Maybe one of these might attract your attention as far as exposing hiddenness. The first one I want to look at is anger. These are, there, there's plenty of verses on anger. You can look them up yourself. Anger, rage, malice. Anger, anger has triggers. Anger gets psychological, even physiological triggers such that a little incident happens and even though it's a grade one problem, I respond inside like it's grade nine. I, I have that. Anger. What's Craig's problem when it comes to issues of anger? Somehow, I am not trusting God and the Word of God. That's the problem. Not the word I spoke to my wife. Not the words I'm thinking in the car at the other driver. That's not my problem. My problem is I'm saying this is the best use of anger, God. And you know, with some of these things, we've done this so many times that we literally have physiological neuronal pathways that these triggers of incidences that happen can trigger all sorts of emotions in us. But again, my problem has to do with trusting God. Let me look at another category, sexual lust. Job 31.1, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully to a young woman. Matthew 5.28, I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in her heart. Romans 1 addresses the issue of sexual problems. 1 Peter 4.3 says, you have spent enough time in the past doing what the pagans choose to do. Living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. If you struggle in this area, what you need is not a behavioral modification program. You do need behavior change, absolutely. But you don't need a behavioral modification program that just modifies your behaviors or limits it. What you need to do is come to the grips with, at the heart of that one, is you are saying, you know what, God, I've read it, I've heard it, my mind agrees with it, but when it really comes down to it, what I need, I know what I need. And because of my insecurities, because I am overwhelmed with everything, I need this kind of temporary relationship fix by looking at pictures or pursuing multiple partners. 
Sure, get an accountability group. Get a friend. Get friends who help you look at your behavior. Make arrangements for that. But understand again, David, and, and maybe David did say, you know what, from now on, I'm not going to walk on the roof without my wife or one of my wives. That may be a good idea for David to always carry a wife around, so he, that's fine. But understand, this is a heart issue. And the heart of the sin is not the person that you just reduce to tears by a response that you made. The heart of the sin is that you do not trust God. In this area of sexual lust, the entertainment industry in the world spends billions of dollars trying to tell us that God doesn't know what's best. That's what they're doing. That's the message. The current is taking us and our children down the stream. God does not know what's best. This is what's best. Read Romans 1. Watch the whole progress of sin through that, and it is magnified and emphasized in the sexual realm. Pornography is a huge issue. It needs to be addressed. Ultimately, again, it's an issue of trust in God. But yes, we can come along and help each other as we desire to change and address behaviors. In a couple of weeks at the men's breakfast, we're going to present an opportunity for a couple of small groups for men who would like to have some others as they walk along the path of not just stopping pornography, but as they walk along the path, hopefully to have their eyes and heart open to realize that it's not just in that sexual area, but in so many areas of their life, they refuse to trust God. And more information will be given for those who would like to walk along again, not just to change your behavior, but hopefully to reintroduce you to a deep trusting relationship with God. And the last category is work and treasure. This is the category the rich young ruler was in, by the way. There's nothing wrong with work. There's nothing wrong with savings. There's nothing wrong with treasuring. Intrinsically, they're fine. The trouble is work can support our addiction to money, our addiction to power, our addiction to reputation. And Jesus talks about, and others in the New Testament, they give cautions for that. Do not store for yourself treasures on earth where moth and vermin can destroy them. For where your treasure is, there your heart is. The rich young ruler's heart was in his possessions. And that's why he went away sad. So, God is good. God is good, and you are invited to trust him. May that be the question on your mind. Let us pray. Well, Father, we, we easily say words, we sing words, we even feel your goodness. And some days, our, our feelings of your goodness, we, we agree with you, and, and we resonate with that, and, and those are good days. And yet, Father, there are other days in which what you have given us, which you say you will work for good and which is good in our lives, in which we resist it, if not defy it. And there are many days in which we don't spend time even looking 
for what you say is good in an arena. Father, open our eyes. May we be found out. May there be husbands and wives and parents and kids. May there be close friends for whom they get found out and it comes in the open because that's where you get to work. That's where you get to show love through brothers and sisters. So to that end, may we grow in the trust of you, Father, as we look at what Jesus has done for us and the love for us. All for your namesake and glory. Amen.